Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Well, a very good morning, afternoon, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast for the first time, is our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's where you come in. Hey, get online and get your Bible questions to us, whether it's a question about a passage in the Bible you'd like to explore a little bit more up close and personally. Maybe you'd like to uh, find out how to apply the principles, precepts, even the practical examples we find in God. God's word to the current controversies and challenges you're facing in life. Uh, perhaps you've been asked a tough question about the Christian faith, or maybe you've always had a question percolating in the back of your mind, but you've never found a no harm, no foul, non-judgmental place to get those questions answered. That's what we like to provide for you each and every day here on the broadcast. Uh, feel free to join us with any or all of those kind of questions. We're more than happy to tackle any question you have, as long as it meets a pretty uh, basic standard. Just make sure it's a sincere question. If you're looking for an answer straight from the Bible, we'll be happy to tackle those issues. Uh, Sean, uh, how can people get those questions to us? Well, if you'd like to join us online, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab after typing that into the website's page and identity, you'll be sent to another page where you can engage with us face-to-face. On the right-hand side of the screen, you'll see chat. That is where you can leave your questions for us as the broadcast unfolds. If you're listening on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, or are also joining us there but want to send your questions to us at a later date, maybe time ran out and we weren't able to get to your question, feel free to email us. The email address is questions, plural, F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. That's spelled out for you on there as well as our social media platforms, which are, of course, on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is a reason for hope. But note, since we don't control why, or when we are taken off of those platforms, we want to make sure that the website is your main ministry meeting place for engaging with us on the questions, because obviously we're not going to ban ourselves without good reason. So with that said, make sure that your questions are questions. They are sincere. You want to hear the answer, and they are concerning the Bible. If, As the text stands, you want clarification on those issues past, present, or future, we are happy to engage with you, but if we're going to go into rabbit trails and get off topic and so forth, there is a place for current events, but we ultimately want to tie it back to even with what we'll be starting here today, a prophecy update. So make sure that at its foundation and with the crux of the question, pun intended, it ultimately focuses on the Bible. If we're going to go to hypotheticals that leave us outside of the Bible, then I'm sure there are programs that will entertain that, but our goal here today is to deal with what is. So remember, sincere Bible questions are what are welcome. YouTube is a reason for hope. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson is Facebook. Our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com and our email address, questions for hope. Uh, I missed that up, didn't I? Questions for hope at gmail.com. That's right. <laughs> Follow the train of thought. But nonetheless, 
we also want to take the time to make sure God speaks more than we do. So why don't we start with a word of prayer and see how much uh, use of the time we can make. Yeah, Lord, thank you so much that uh, as we gather here, uh, you tell us in your word that you delight in leading your people into all truth. And so we lay hold of your willingness now. Uh, We look forward to uh, receiving from you uh, perhaps some real insights into uh, not just the issues that might be in the forefront of our minds, but the issues you want to deal with in our hearts. So guide us into truth. Lead us to a place where we have a deeper and fuller relationship with you than we've ever had before. Thank you, Lord, that when your word goes forth, it never returns to you void. It always accomplishes what you send it out to do. Edify us, exhort us, and comfort us as we focus in on your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, what is going on in the world today? Well, uh, as we come off the weekends, uh, it's always uh, an interesting uh, time to do a prophecy update, mainly uh, because uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, as far as uh, the Jewish calendar is concerned, Sunday is the first day of the week. The, the, the Sabbath runs from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, and uh, business uh, begins to hit in Israel, uh, both uh, politically and uh, commercially, on Sunday. It's the equivalent of, of our Mondays around here. And so there's always some uh, interesting uh, things that are going on in the news uh, that we'd like to uh, keep you uh, up to date on. Uh, we really believe, uh, along with our good friend Don Stewart, Uh, He put it this way, that uh, as far as God's prophetic plan, uh, the timing uh, and the proximity that we have to the return of Jesus, uh, Israel is the hour hand, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and the Temple Mount itself in Jerusalem is the second hand. Boy, uh, did we see that uh, principle uh, being brought to the forefront uh, this weekend. Headline uh, in the the, uh, Jerusalem Post Uh, running today, Uh, the Prime Minister's Office of Israel uh, said that a court ruling on the Temple Mount and Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount doesn't change what's known as the status quo regarding the Jewish uh, temple uh, involvement on the Temple Mount. Uh, A magistrate court in Israel on Sunday released a ruling that uh, said that uh, three uh, Israeli miners who were brought up on uh, charges and uh, threatened to have uh, any kind of opportunity to visit the Temple Mount in the future taken away from them, were cleared by the Jerusalem Magistrate's Court Office. Uh, Judge Zion Sahiri said in his ruling Sunday uh, that uh, the Jewish uh, young men who were on the Temple Mount bowed to the ground and recited what is known as the Shema, That is the traditional Jewish daily prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The word Shema is the first word of that. It literally means hear. Uh, uh, Judge Shirai did not believe the utterance of Shema Yisrael constituted a disturbance of the peace at a criminal level on the Temple Mount. He also went on to say that the miners would not have been in a position to discern wrongdoing, given that Israeli Police Inspector General Kobe Shabbatai had spoken to Israel about freedom of worship at the site. Uh, he quoted, he was quoted on the Ynet News Services saying, The Temple Mount is open. We allow all residents of the state and the territories who come to pray on the mount to ascend and observe their freedom to worship religiously. So because uh, this individual had made this kind of pronouncement, 
the uh, miners that had prayed and said the Shema, bowed down in the Temple Mount, uh, would not be uh, held uh, liable for any kind of uh, criminal proceedings or restriction on their uh, future uh, visits to the Temple Mount. Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal to you or to me. But uh, to the Muslims involved, it would be a big deal, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Remember that Islam is not a religious system. It is a political system that includes your religious requirements under Sharia law. Sharia meaning the way to water. So this legislation of the superiority of everything that is Islam is very nationalistic and a very harshly enforced, as is expected from a 7th century warlord, system of legality. So if there's even any public expression of someone being able to meet at the same level of Muslims, it is based on the insecurity of their founder, who considered any competition to his claims other than total adherence, support, or as the word Islam itself means, submission is in itself a threat. That's why people who leave Islam are given the death penalty in every single Muslim country and predominant Muslim communities as well, because that is not just an act of will on the part of an individual, it is an act of an insult against Islam as a whole. It is superior. Why would you? leave it okay so so when we talk about the status quo uh, what we're referring to is a series of laws that uh, Israel has put in place with an attempt to find some kind of uh, agree to disagree if you will uh, with the Muslims freedom Uh, of religion and the free expression thereof are one of the fundamental human rights recognized internationally Islamic nations are the only exception yeah so when the Muslims look at the Temple Mount area Uh, Because of an arrangement that Israel made after the 1967 war when they retook the Temple Mount area, Uh, IDF uh, General Moshe Dayan uh, held out an olive branch to the surrounding Muslim nations saying, look, we just want peace with you. And in order for you to see how serious we are about all this, and Dayan was not a religiously observant Jew, by the way, he was an atheist. Uh, He uh, offered this uh, olive branch to the surrounding Arab nations. Uh, and the uh, the world of Islam itself by saying we will allow the Jordanians to continue to administrate the Temple Mount area, also known as the Noble Sanctuary by the Muslims. Uh, a uh, an, an institution called the Waqfa was uh, put into practice. And uh, the members of the Waqfa, and we've experienced this on our trips to Israel, are quite uh, passionate about uh, enforcing what they would call propriety of worship on the Temple Mount areas. And uh, and so if you go up uh, to Israel and you go on a visit to the Temple Mount, uh, you will find that you will, if you are a tour group, have a Waqfa member who will uh, monitor exactly what is told you by the tour guides. And the tour guides have uh, very strict guidelines concerning what they can say and can't say while you're on the Temple Mount. For instance, if they uh, use the word Temple Mount uh, there, what will a Waqfa member do? It's not the Temple. It is Al-Aqsa, the center. Yeah. Okay. So they they will immediately uh, clarify that. We've seen uh, extreme uh, at least by our lights, uh, manifestations of the uh, the uh, Wakfa people trying to assert their dominance. I don't think they really care, but they just want everyone to know they're in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen, say, women who the Wakfa will deem are wearing immodest clothing 
uh, not having skirts that are low enough by the lights of the wakfa, they will uh, have someone run up to them with a beach towel and have to wear it uh, the whole time to be properly covered. Uh, one couple we uh, we saw while we were up there uh, had the wakfa, they were holding hands up there. That was considered a uh, violation of propriety. Uh, the wakfa people would come up and literally push the people apart uh, to, to do that. With uh, a few and, other descriptions of the moral fiber and character of the women. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it is really uh, a, a sight to see as far as these things are concerned. Very passionate uh, commitment by these individuals to make sure the propriety uh, is maintained there and that there would be no possibility whatsoever of Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount. Now, that comes in, in two streams, if you will. First of all, the Muslims do not want to have any kind of Jewish prayer going on the Temple Mount because they consider that a potential threat to their continued uh, control of this particular area. Uh, but uh, even from a Jewish point of view, Orthodox Judaism also uh, does not want anyone to pray on the Temple Mount. Why? Because the Messiah hasn't returned yet. And uh, there is a possibility that because uh, they are not certain where the previous temple was or where the Holy of Holies is, uh, an individual praying on the Temple Mount, even a Jewish individual, could find themselves violating the laws of Moses by praying inside, say, an area that only the priests and Levites could serve on. Uh, heaven forbid, by their lights, an individual will be praying and uh, be standing in the previous place where the Holy of Holies was. That is a place that only the high priest could pray in, and that only uh, one uh, day out of the year on the, the uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So you've got the Orthodox freaking out over people potentially praying on the former side of the uh, temple. You've got the Muslims freaking out over this. And into this, you've got these three kids who bowed down, and prayed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Well, you could imagine the hue, cry, and uproar that happened here. And as a result of that, uh, this judge basically saying, well, they're kids, essentially. Uh, they were taking the word of uh, the chief magistrate of the police in Jerusalem, saying it was a place of prayer for everybody. It's welcome for anybody to pray. They took that seriously. And so as such... Their continued uh, participation or coming back on the Temple Mount should not be restricted. Well, uh, you can imagine how this has stirred things up here. And uh, a very interesting article in the Jerusalem Post today uh, with this headline, Iranian threats don't spook Israel, Temple Mount warnings do. Israel is not spooked by Iranian threats because it feels it can deal with them. It is frightened by threats of a global jihad over the Al-Aqsa Mosque and its status in Israel. And uh, what this article uh, goes on to do, and it's a fascinating read, and I would encourage you to go to the Jerusalem Post website and read it on your own time. Uh, the fact of the matter is Israel doesn't consider Iran a threat on this same level. Why? Because Israel believes that uh, it can uh, exact uh, very dramatic blows against Iran uh, and not have to worry about it so much because uh, the Muslim world is divided between Shia Islam and Sunni Islam. And uh, the Shiites of Iran 
the rest of the Muslim world uh, basically is nervous about them. The idea of Iran getting a nuclear weapon, uh, the rest of the Muslim world doesn't want to see that happen. So if Israel takes a shot at Iran, uh, the vast majority of the Muslim world, who are not Shiites like Iran, they're Sunnis like Saudi Arabia, uh, doesn't really consider that a, a blow to their personal security. In fact, uh, over the weekend, uh, we saw a, uh, a uh, hit, if you will, uh, that took place against a senior member of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, a man by named Sayyad Kodari, uh, who was a Quds Force colonel whose uh, many activities Israel believed included attempts to attack Israelis who were living abroad. Uh, a group of uh, unidentified motorcycle riders with automatic weapons pulled up in front of this guy and terminated his life. Uh, his killing, according to this article, is, is fascinating. It said his killing was the implementation of a policy first uh, put forth in 2018 by Naftali Bennett, uh, who in a speech said the uh, octopus doctrine was now uh, in force. The octopus doctrine states that Iran's proxies who spread murder and mayhem across the region are like tentacles of an octopus, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, and so on. Uh, and Israel needed to strike uh, not at the tentacles of the octopus, but at the head of the octopus, if it really wanted to make an impact. Uh, Bennett said, the Iranians don't love dying, but it's very easy for them to send others to die. While we're shedding blood fighting their tentacles, the octopus's head is lounging in its chair enjoying itself. But the time has come, he declared, for Israel to aim at the head of the octopus and not its tentacles. So since that time, if Israel strikes Iran, you know, and we've seen it happen with this, uh, we have seen it happen with, uh, say, the uh, targeting of Iran nuclear scientists who have been taken out. Uh, you know, and Iran, Iran always uh, throws an eight-day fit. For instance, after uh, yesterday, or Sunday's uh, taking out of this uh, individual, Iranian President Ibrahim Rasi warned the blood of this great martyr will be avenged. Other Iranian officials were quoted as saying those responsible, meaning Israel, will pay a heavy price. Well, nobody really cares at that point. Israel uh, continues to take action against Iran, uh, reportedly inside Iran, despite all the threats and posturing and bluster, despite real uh, Iranian threats to carry out the threats, because Israel feels like it must. Its security demands that these risky actions take place, and they don't really feel that the entire Muslim world will rally to Iran's defense. However, in spite of the fact Israel feels like it has an antidote, an antidote to anything Iran may deliver as far as a hitback is concerned, not so when it comes to the Temple Mount. There are threats from various quarters that allowing Jews to say the Shema on the Temple Mount will trigger a religious war. Uh, in other words, a war that would involve, say, Israel's neighbors like Jordan like Egypt, uh, like uh, Syria, like uh, Lebanon, uh, you know, like Saudi Arabia, in spite of the Abraham Accords. In fact, there are those who believe that this particular ruling by this magistrate 
could even, in a sense, put in danger the Abraham Accords that have been uh, worked out over uh, the uh, last year. Hamas declared that this uh, magistrate's ruling was a dangerous escalation from which the leader of the occupation will bear consequences. Uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas called it a serious violation of the status quo and uh, called on the United States to intervene to stop it. Uh, Jordan chimed in with condemnations and warnings of its own. So the prime minister's office immediately steps in and issued a statement Sunday evening clarifying there is no change in the status of the the, uh, status quo on the Temple Mount. They said the magistrate court's decision deals solely with the behavior of minors before it, before it was ruling. It represents no broader determination regarding the freedom of worship on the Temple Mount. Uh, regarding the specific criminal case being discussed, the state has informed the government that it will appeal the, t- the decision in the district court. In other words, the Israeli government is saying to the Muslim nations around it, uh, including those it is cozying up to, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to appeal this, we're going to get the right judge in place. And uh, the uh, tenuous and troubling ruling of this particular judge is going to be set aside. Why? Well, because Iranian threats don't move Israel, but threats of hellfire over the changes at the Temple Mount do. Uh, The Israelis do not want to get into another regional war with all these Muslim uh, nations uh, surrounding them attacking them. They're not spooked by Iranian threats. It feels like it can deal with them. It is, however, threatened, uh, frightened by threats of a global jihad uh, over the status of the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, because of the uncertainty uh, of how exactly it would beat that back. So uh, very fascinating things. And, you know, how does this tie into things prophetically? Well, as we have mentioned many times on the broadcast, Uh, Israel is not only the straw that stirs the drink as far as biblical prophecy is concerned, but it is also the straw that stirs the drink as far as events in this world are concerned. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, we are told uh, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. To all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be a very heavy stone for all people. And all who will heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. Though all nations will be gathered against it. Now here we understand some things that are going to happen. Uh, in the future, Israel is going to continue to be this bone of contention. But not just Israel, Jerusalem itself. And not just Jerusalem itself, but the Temple Mount area. And uh, it is going to result in some very irrational, even drunken reactions to Israel being back into the land again. Uh, The court ruling and the reactions of the nations around them, I think, are another indicator that we are seeing the stage being set for just these sort of things happening. You know, people say, well, you know, is the temple going to be rebuilt on its historic site? One of the prophecies that we do believe will be fulfilled only when the Antichrist comes to power is the prophecy that will allow Israel to rebuild its temple on its historic site and that the Antichrist will be such a satanically inspired man of peace, if you will, that you will even get the Muslims and the Jews to play nice with each other, at least for three and a half years, 
of the tribulation. There's some fascinating scriptures in Revelation chapter 11 that speak about uh, the outer court being given over to the Gentiles, even though there is going to be a temple rebuilt there. Daniel chapter 9 uh, definitely uh, strongly implies that uh, the Antichrist will allow uh, the Jews to rebuild its temple, but will double-cross them at the halfway point of the tribulation uh, and take away the offering and the sacrifice there. In order for offering and sacrifice to happen, you've got to have a temple. So uh, that's kind of the trend that we see there. We don't believe that uh, we're going to see any kind of a temple being built there. You know, it's speculation on our part. We don't believe that's going to happen until the Antichrist makes it happen, right? Right. But if, on the other hand, the temple does end up being rebuilt before the time of the rapture, prophecy hasn't failed. What needs to be understood is that this is a very unstable part of the world because not only of an abundance of information, but also a lack. Now, there's two reasons for that. First of all, the abundance of information is the imperative on all those who claimed that Muhammad was a prophet of God to subjugate the Jews and Christians until they acknowledge the superiority of his true religion. The second reason and a lack of information is the only mention of this mosque, uh, the mosque specifically in Jerusalem, what's called the center, built by, interestingly enough, one of Muhammad's successors when it was conquered uh, almost 50 years, I think, after his death, but we'll leave that aside, is because in the Quran, chapter 17 and verse 1, it is mentioned in passing as the furthermost mosque. It's not mentioned as Al-Aqsa. It's not mentioned as in Jerusalem. It is mentioned as the furthermost mosque. There are lots of theories as to how far this would have gone, and the theories as far as their answers continue to expand. But this is our opportunity. If Muslims are more informed about what actual Islamic teaching is, then that will hopefully be enough hesitation that when, not if, but when another global jihad is called against the Jews, that they will not be willing to lay down their lives, much like the Iranian people. But if, on the other hand, we're put in a position where we can clarify not just the information, but the misinformation, and ask better questions, then we'll be putting ourselves in a better place where we can love people on the basis of truth as well as grace. Yeah. We need both. Yeah, absolutely. All right, going out to our questions. A few sent along to us from YouTube. Uh, this one starts regarding, uh, well, why not, uh, I guess, begin in the dictionary. Holly wants to know, why do we worship Jesus? Why is he worthy of worship? What does that word mean, worship? Well, it literally, uh, the old English term was worth-ship. That is to ascribe to something the worth that it was due. When we talk about worshiping Jesus, we talk about acknowledging him for who he claims to be. Now, who does Jesus claim to be and how did he prove that he was worthy of that high level of worship? Well, we can go to the book of Revelation chapter 5 where heaven has a few examples. This is starting in verse 9. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy. Notice that to take the scroll and open its seals. For what reason? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So there we have three examples. He not only died, but he rose from the dead. He not only gave himself as a sacrifice for others, but redeemed us back to a saving relationship with God. And he not only redeemed us, but he 
brought our value so exponentially high that we are considered children of the king, that we are sons of God, as the book of Romans chapter 8 describes us, through right. the spirit of adoption. So recognizing him as our redeemer, as our savior, and as our Lord, him proving himself to be God, are just three of those worship things. To literally worship means to bow down, yeah. to recognize someone's authority. If you yeah. bow to a king, you're recognizing yeah. you as the king. You're exposing vulnerability and saying, I'm not here to hurt you. Yeah. I recognize you as the head of state here. Yeah, and you know, as far as Jesus being worthy of worship as God, uh, you know, I just believe the best answer to this is going to the source, what Jesus said about himself. Uh, we're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, uh, the Jewish uh, religious leaders of his time uh, were in a real uproar uh, because Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day. And when they asked him uh, why he had healed on the Sabbath day, Jesus answered and said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. In verse 18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Uh, in other words, they understood the, the ramifications of what Jesus was saying here. Now, did Jesus say, calm down, calm down, I'm just a good teacher? Or calm down, calm down, I'm just a rabbi? Or calm down, calm down, I'm just an exalted, uh, fast-forward product of uh, spiritual evolution, like the Mormons would say. And uh, no, you don't have to, to worry about No, he said, most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. The first thing that Jesus says is that he does the same things that the father does. In other words, he does and has the same powers, privileges, and prerogatives as God. Then he goes on and says, For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. Jesus claims to have the same authority as the father to give life. And there is only one giver of life, and that is God. Notice he goes on. He said that for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. Who is the judge of all the earth? God, right? Jesus said, I'm the judge of all the earth. Why? That all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, what does that say about worship? Well, if we don't worship God, then we're not worshiping the son. But usually people say, if you worship God, you should only be worshiping the Father. But the Son says you don't worship the Father and the Son the same way. You're not worshiping either. Right. So, uh, again, Holly, that would be probably the most succinct answer to your question. Why do we worship Jesus? Well, we worship Jesus when we ascribe to him the worth that he is due he claimed to be God. He said in John chapter 14 and verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, that's either true or that's false. Uh, either Jesus meant that, and he is, in fact, God in human flesh, or he is the worst hoaxer or liar or deceiver the world has ever known. You can't have it both ways. And so we who know Jesus as our Savior, we who have been uh, blessed by the Father, to have the Son revealed to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, we ascribe that worth to Him. And, and so as such, you know, when we talk about worship, oftentimes we get confused because we confuse it with 
a uh, emotional experience or the response to singing certain songs or even the act of singing certain songs to God. Singing songs or even having an emotional experience, they're fine, but they aren't worship. Worship leads us to a place where we ascribe the worth to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that uh, they are uh, worthy of having as God. Uh, all these other things, singing songs, uh, you know, listening to God's word, uh, being together as a body of believers, having an emotional experience, all these things can lead us to a place of worship, but they aren't worship itself. Worship is when we properly ascribe worth to God. All right. Uh, here's a question from Monica who wants to know, when does, when does the marriage wedding feast take place? I believe you're referring to the marriage, the marriage supper. supper. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, she believes it happens directly after the rapture during the seven-year tribulation. Some say not till after the great tribulation. Thank you. Uh, let me... Uh, play devil's advocate, or I guess fellow Christian, but of different worldviews advocate, not to demonize anybody. Uh, I'll take the position and give the explanation as to why they would take that position as to after the tribulation, and then you can give the proof text that would clarify this a little bit more yeah, as go to ahead. our position. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the first mention of the marriage supper of the lamb at least in that overt way there's allusions to it even people who disagrees with us would allow in saying there's references jesus makes to us uh, obviously uh, drinking wine again with us in the kingdom of heaven right but no marriage supper of the lamb there's obviously references to us as the bridegroom by the apostles but not directly in a feast setting like jesus said apart from parables right so here is the and this is where the argument takes place chronologically at revelation 18 what do we see the final trump or bowl judgment is poured out on the earth mystery babylon is remembered before god to drink the wine of his wrath that's revelation chapter 16 and what happens the next two chapters are dedicated to explaining what that means then after revelation chapter 18 Revelation 19 takes place, and something is now mentioned, and notice, in the chronological term. This is after, of course, the worship of God in verses 1 through 5 of Babylon being destroyed, right? Yeah. So note the emphasis on chronology. Then in verse 6 we read, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And to her and uh, to his wife she has made herself ready. Then it goes on to note the significance of how she's made ready and the significance of that symbol of linen. But the point being made is this, Monica. The argument would be we see a progression of events. Babylon is destroyed in the end of the tribulation. Then it says the white... Um, um, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Her wife has made, his wife has made herself ready. They would emphasize the chronological sequence of this to say, well, this is an event that takes place in that, I guess, interim between the final judgment of the tribulation and the actual second coming of Christ, or maybe even proceeding into the millennium, but set for the select few. Yep. Now, the point then is being made, notice their handling of the scripture. They emphasize Revelation 19 chronologically. And note, 
We don't necessarily disagree with that. No. But more information is better than less. So when they would make the point, it's at the end of the tribulation, they come to that conclusion because it's mentioned at the end of the tribulation. Right. But what more information are we given about this that would suggest it might encompass the whole of the tribulation? Uh, well, you know, the the, uh, the the most interesting thing about all of this is that uh, in Revelation chapter 19, uh, we are told uh, in verse six, and I heard is the sound of great a multitude, the sound of many waters, the sound of many thundering, saying, "Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. Let us be glad and rejoice and uh, and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen." is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, see, you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then verse 11 says, now I saw heaven open. And then the actual second coming takes place. Well, we can know that this marriage supper of the lamb apparently has happened before the actual second coming takes place. That's why we place it in that tribulation period, sometime between the rapture of the church and the return of the Lord. As far as uh, it uh, lasting the entire seven years, it would dovetail with the fact that a marriage supper would last seven days in Jewish culture. And so, you know, we, we can't be, I think, dogmatic about all of this. But our general take is that uh, what are we going to be doing during that seven-year period of time uh, between the time Jesus comes for us and the time we return with him? Probably enjoying that marriage supper of the Lamb. So obviously we don't go chapter and verse and say that this is a seven-year-long feast. We have to make a cultural inference right, for that. Exactly. Obviously we don't say this is a salvation issue. You're in fundamental denial of Scripture if you come to yeah, the former yeah. conclusion. And obviously when you make the point and say, okay, given more information, what are we told? Well, keep interpreting the passage the way you have been. If the second coming of Christ, and this is not controversial in either position, Monica— is at the end of the tribulation period, then the taking place in the millennium is thrown out. Likewise, if we were to say, oh, well, maybe it just takes seven days in heaven. Well, be that as it may, what is the point of emphasis in this chapter? Something's being reintroduced, and that is what? Terminology that's used by Paul the Apostle in reference to the Jewish people? No, not since the right. Old Testament prophets. This is um, reference to the church where Paul says, I have presented you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That the church as the bride of Christ is this constant theme. Notice, not the bride of God in just a broad sense like the Old Testament. Right. And which, by the way, in the book of Hosea describes them being divorced from him, but not forsaken. Yeah. That's important detail as well. The point being made is this. If the church is identified with this theme, we catch the reference. His bride has made herself ready. Well, when has the bride, or any bride for that matter, been mentioned at all since Revelation chapter 3? It's not. Yeah. So we have to make these inferences. Now notice, in, we're putting information in that we're also getting from Scripture and also from the um, cultural context. Now I know very bad teachers who will say, well, 
cultural context then, that's an authority above the Bible now then, isn't it? No. And we're not going to come to conclusions based on that. We're not going to say it's a seven-year feast because Jewish uh, feasts generally lasted seven days in the context of a wedding. But note, Monica, what are we coming to conclusions with? More information. Right. Plain information's great. We both agree in two very important things. The marriage supper will happen and that it does involve the church. But what does that constitute then? How long will it be? We have to come to conclusions based on the information we have. And this, frankly, isn't one of them. Yeah. Yeah, we, as Chuck Smith was, would, uh, was famously say, we just need to file it away in the file under needs more information. And I'm sure when the rapture happens and we see how it all unfolds, nobody is going to say, well, Lord, I just don't really think these arrangements for this uh, wedding feast are really uh, adequate here. Yeah, yeah I think it's going to be an awesome time. That would be a ridiculous assumption. But it, if on the other hand, we make other assumptions that are saying, well, what do we do during the tribulation? Obviously, there's going to be some drama in heaven if i read revelation 11 and 15 correctly but i also note it's not going to be one of isolation or malcontentment for those who have been kept from his wrath so make sure that we're dealing with more information we know the difference between good and bad information and we also make sure our conclusions are as informed as our ideas yeah and and my default position on this you know monica is that people say well what are we going to be doing during that time Well, I'll tell you what we're going to be doing. John chapter 17 and verse 3 said, Jesus said, this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one that you've set. Uh, We take a look at uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We discover that the business of heaven, what keeps heaven occupied, is uh, enjoying and being blown away and understanding and appreciating the presence of God, knowing him in a personal way. So, uh, you know, I don't think uh, any of us are going to be bored or say, well, what happens next? Or, gee, you know, how many more days till we come back to earth? Uh, we're just going to be enjoying the presence of the Lord. And the Lord is going to use that time, including the event called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, to lead us into that deeper relationship with him. All right. Let's know if that helps you out, Monica. I know it's probably not as conclusive as you want, but we can definitely know what it isn't. It won't take place after the millennium if you're willing to approach revelation as a chronological text there's nothing symbolic as far as the timing we're just not told the length we're just noting the extent people who say it's at the end of the tribulation note that narrow time window between babylon's destruction and the actual coming of christ eh, might have merit but when it comes to what we actually do know from the text it's not enough to make insistent conclusions upon just informed ones um here's a question from jeffrey who wants to know why was jesus named jesus when the prophecy and the angel said to name him emmanuel he gives the passages for us isaiah seven fourteen says the lord himself will give you a sign speaking to king ahaz see the virgin will conceive have a son and his name will be called Emmanuel. That is, of course, God with us. Matthew does the homework for us in quoting that, saying, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So, if Jesus is supposed to have one and only one name, we're already going beyond the culture, yeah, aren't we? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we see that, uh, a really defining passage, I think for this is, uh, when, uh, the angel came and, uh, 
told Mary what was going to be going on. Uh, finally, we see in Matthew chapter 1 what happens after his birth. Uh, we are told uh, that uh, the angel visited Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So the angel says, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Well, the name Jesus in Hebrew, we would uh, best translate, I guess, Joshua, but it literally means Yahweh is salvation. And then we are told, so all this was done, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel Lord commanded him and took him to, to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So, you know, here we see the name Jesus. Yahshua is salvation. That tells us who Jesus is, in, in a sense, what he came to do. Emmanuel reveals his character, the fact that he is God with us. Now, you know, this is a, a bit of an aside, but I'll go there anyway. Uh, there are those who will take a look at that prophecy being mentioned there from uh, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 and say, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. Uh, this is uh, not a prophecy of Messiah. This was a prophecy that uh, there would be a child who would be born. And before he's old enough to know right and wrong, uh, the enemy that Israel was worried about was going to be roundly defeated. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I wrote a uh, term paper on this uh, when I was in seminary. Uh, there are those who will say, well, see, it was just this uh, localized sort of fulfillment. It wasn't a messianic prediction. Matthew gets it wrong. Well, a couple big problems with that. First of all, let's talk about the Isaiah 7 passage. What enters into that Isaiah 7 passage is that a king of Israel, King Ahaz, is challenged by the prophet Isaiah to ask a sign from the Lord. He goes, well, uh, you know, uh, I, I won't ask the Lord for a sign, you know, nor, uh, nor tempt the Lord. It sounds very godly. But Ahaz was trying to play both sides of the street. He liked the worship of Yahweh, but he also liked his idols. And what Isaiah was saying to him is, man, you got to fish or cut bait. You got to decide who you're going to worship once and for all. And uh, the response from God is really interesting to the prophet Isaiah. He says, House of David, have you wearied men, but are you going to weary God also? In other words, I'm getting exasperated with you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this prophecy, uh, this sign, was, uh, was uh, given precedent by saying, hey, ask for a sign as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol itself. And that's where Ahaz begged off. He didn't go, ah, oh, I don't want this, that kind of a sign because then I'll have to decide one way or the other. Well, you know, again, we do see in Isaiah chapter 7 that there would be a local fulfillment of that sign, a, an immediate fulfillment of that sign, that there would be this child that would be born and before it was weaned, this local enemy would be defeated. And that's kind of a nifty sign, but that isn't high as heaven or deep as Sheol, is it? No. Uh, in other words, what God is saying is, I'm going to give you the sign to end all signs. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Emmanuel. I'll say, well, you know, that word virgin, you know, I mean, it can mean a literal virgin, but it can just mean a young woman. Well, apparently that wasn't the way the Jews took it, because in the Septuagint translation of Isaiah, uh, the word that is used in Greek uh, by the translators there is the word parthenos, which is the technical term for a virgin in Greek. In other words, the translators from Hebrew to the Greek understood the significance of this prophecy. And so did the Holy Spirit speaking through Matthew. Matthew definitely would disagree with those who just say, well, it, was a, it wasn't really a prophecy of, of Messiah. In fact, Matthew records the fact that no less an individual than Gabriel himself, the angel said, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So rather than get involved with some kind of technical discussion about uh, the Thula, you know, and, and the in Hebrew and and was that really a technical term uh, when uh, the Thula versus Alma in Hebrew and all this stuff. Here we see the clarification. And uh, this leads us to something when you take a look at a passage in the Old Testament. And sometimes people will say, well, is this really uh, a prophecy of Messiah? The safest bet uh, to find out if a prophecy was really a prophecy of Messiah is to take a look at the New Testament uh, because the divinely inspired, Holy Spirit inspired authors there will tell you uh, whether this was a prophecy or not. You know, are there some types or some pictures of Messiah we find in the Old Testament? Yes, yeah, certainly. But if you really want a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, not only look at Old Testament prophecy, but see how it was defined in the New Testament. And you'll find those prophecies given pretty clearly and plus we don't even need to go that far if we play on the terms of the orthodox jews who would reject jesus as messiah it turns out they end up burying that argument themselves if you are familiar first of all about the difference between modern judaism and temple judaism the time at which their temple was in fact intact what they had was essentially not just their traditions but also the writings of their respected rabbis what they would do is to make the text accessible they would write these things in what were called targums in Aramaic, right. the common language of that day, because everyone was learning the language of Babylon when they spent 70 years in it. They came back, and as you know, second languages are hard. So they had that primary language. Yeah. And the point being made was this. In those writings, you can look through the lines of messianic prophecies the rabbis themselves at this time identified, and they do consider Isaiah 7, just like first, or Second Samuel chapter 7, also noting the chapters are introduced later, but the messianic prophecy in regards to David as a dual prophecy, not just in a historical immediate, like with Isaiah, recognition of his kingship being legitimate, because, you know, he married into the lineage of Saul. Samuel anointed uh, uh, Saul at first and then anointed David later on. But hey, how do you know the history just wasn't revised in David's favor? To the victor go the spoils, the victors write history. Right. But God himself sent Nathan the prophet to verify that. But it wasn't limited to that. One will sit on your throne forever that included the messianic line and right. jo and uh, the ancient rabbi said this is how we know that the messiah must be a son of david even today they acknowledge that so then tying it into the isaiah 7 prophecy what do we need to ask not just is there an immediate historical fulfillment like with david because god speaking doesn't yeah. just have to predict the future right it can just be god speaking right but note this point as well 
Why is it, and I don't mean to be graphic, I won't use the word that they use to describe him, but why would they go out of their way in what's called Talmud Sanhedrin? This is the writing of the ruling authorities in the Jewish traditions in the ancient world, go out of their way to literally point the finger and say, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. He was the illegitimate child of Mary's interactions with a Roman guard in Nazareth. And they even go out of his way to name him. We haven't verified any of this, but note the point. Why would they have to say that Mary wasn't a virgin if the prophecy for all times and for all people doesn't talk about them being a virgin? Why would they have to dismiss a non-prophecy? It was a non-prophecy. It was a prophecy, and they had to explain it away. You don't explain away facts that never existed. You have to explain away facts that do. If the Messiah was supposed to be born of a virgin, and Matthew pointed this out, the Jews during Jesus' time, the Jews after Jesus' time, and the Jews who heard this prophecy themselves said... This is a reference to something big that's only in the modern day where people can play on people's ignorance that they can just say, well, it wasn't a prophecy to begin with. Yeah. And, and you know, where this kind of lands as far as uh, the impact for our lives is you'll run into some people and say, well, you know, you can be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth. What? How in the world can you possibly say something like you can be an ill-informed Christian. You can be a Christian that has not uh, say come to grips with these or things. But once you find just even reading through the gospel accounts, how essential this is and why is it essential? Because as the angel Gabriel said to Mary, that which will be born is uh, uh, the son of God. So, uh, you know, is of the Holy Spirit. Again, Gabriel speaking to Joseph here in Matthew chapter one. So that's either true or that's not. You can say, well, you know, I think that's just a beautiful illustration of a wonderful truth. of No, you can't. Scripture doesn't give you any wiggle room on that. Either Jesus is the son of God or he's not. Either he is virgin born or he's not. And if he's not virgin born, he's not the son of God. All right. Um, Two questions I think we can knock out fairly quickly. We'll make the most of the four minutes and five seconds we have left. Uh, Both from Mac, who wants to know, does the rapture happen in the twinkling of an eye? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now notice that's just one verse. Let me properly read the whole passage so we know it's referring to the rapture. In a chapter that has literally been talking about the resurrection and the implications thereof from verse 1, it says in verse 50, Now this I say, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, euphemism for death, we won't all physically die, but we shall all be changed. Then we get into that moment, that twinkling of an eye passage. So people without physical death will receive a resurrection body, which is what he's been talking about for the last 49 verses. Where do we cross-reference that in reference to the rapture? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, if we believe Jesus died and rose again, same context, the resurrection, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Notice the physical dead. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Uh, This isn't a speculation on Paul's part or some false doctrine that was made up by John Darby in the last 200 years. That we 
we who are alive and remain, same topic that was introduced in verse 50, until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep. If you physically died, you're with the Lord. Remember 2 Corinthians, right? To be absent right. the body, present with the Lord. But then he goes on to say in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, notice the chronology here, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Now, what's that word in Greek? Harpazo. How is it translated into Latin? Uh, it literally is the word uh, raptus. Okay, now yeah. we know where the word came yeah. from. But notice this. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So these two passages together note that transition. First Corinthians 15 Verse 52 mentions the twinkling of an eye, an instantaneous event. The First Thessalonians passage notices the uh, transition is us being caught up violently. That's where we get the slang term for it. If you don't like rapture, you can call it something else. But no, you can that's call it the, the snatch if you yes. want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, here's one more, maybe two. We'll see. Uh, why isn't the U.S. mentioned in the Bible? Does it have to be? Uh, well, no, uh, the, you know, the United States isn't mentioned in the Bible, uh, because all the events that we find going on in the tribulation period are those events where God wraps up his dealings with the world through the nation of Israel. The nations that are directly involved in impacting Israel in the last days are very specifically mentioned. You want to see a specific list of nations and people groups read through, uh, Ezekiel chapters, uh, 38 and 39. You're going to find that the invading armies, the Gog and Magog invasion are very specifically spelled out, including a nation we can identify today as modern Iran. Persia is mentioned there. United States not mentioned there. Well, there's a lot of different theories about that. Remember, the Antichrist is going to dominate the world at this time. There are those who believe that the United States is going to cease being the dominant world power during this time and that the Antichrist is going to fill the vacuum that is left, I believe, after the rapture of the church. I think the United States is going to be so devastated by that particular event. Uh, according to the Barna organization, there's some 50-some million uh, Bible-believing evangelicals in this country. Uh, imagine if he's half right. 25 million people vanished without a trace. Less than 3,000 left this earth suddenly on 9-11. It took our economy three years to recover. Imagine how the United States, more than really any other big uh, major dominating power in the world, is going to be affected by all of that. That's probably why we're not mentioned. We'll be a shell of our former selves, probably just an ally of the Antichrist. And plus, there's lots of references to all nations. We're one of them. So yeah. maybe that counts. Yeah. Also, how many Bible verses are mentioning Jesus' early life? Luke 2. That's it. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.